Well, two weeks ago in Montgomery, Alabama, a new memorial was opened. It is a memorial that as both a Christian and an American, I believe to be of the utmost importance. The memorial is entitled the National Memorial for Peace and Justice. Its mission is to expose the degradation of racial segregation, as well as the intimidation that has long existed towards the African-American community in America. And when asked why they've chosen to erect this monument, the director, Brian Stevenson, answers the question, I think, quite well. He says, quote, our nation's history of racial injustice casts a shadow across the American landscape. This shadow cannot be lifted until we shine the light of the truth on the destructive violence that shaped our nation, traumatized people of color, and compromised our commitment to the rule of law and to equal justice, unquote. In other words, the reason why this somber memorial in Montgomery, Alabama exists and the reason why it bears the name for peace and for justice is because they rightly understand that like the Holocaust Museum here in D.C., you cannot have peace and justice without properly remembering the truth of injustices in times past. Now you ask the question, what in the world does that have to do with the book of Judges? Well, as we have seen, as we've been walking through the book of Judges, and as we will see all the more today, the book of Judges is meant to be a kind of world memorial to peace and justice. Like the memorial in Montgomery, Alabama, uh, Judges is meant to, to disturb us so that we might rightly reject the supremacy of self and to then submit ourselves to Christ as King. In order to get there, though, that means that we're going to have to walk the kind of dark halls of this memorial in Judges chapter 19 to 21. Save the cross of Christ. I believe these chapters to be some of the darkest chapters in the entire Bible. Last Friday, I spent some almost five hours in the African American Museum, and I can tell you that as a white American, it was difficult for me, but it was good for me to read that and experience that. And so it is with this passage. These are difficult words, but they're good for us. We understand what they're trying to To tell us. And so I need to warn you, if you've not read these passages, if you're not familiar with them, they are difficult to read, difficult to study. But again, like all the other pieces of the Bible, they are God's good gift to us. Judges 19 to 21 is good for us. And so at this church, we are not going to shy away from the difficult passages. We're going to open them. We're going to read them. We're going to think about them. We're not going to have a kind of popcorn Christianity that makes things light and fluffy and easy. So we're going to read the Bible and we're going to think about it. We're going to say, stare at these texts so as to shine the light of the truth that will shine light on destructive violence of times past in order that we might know the greater justice which leads to a deeper peace with God. And so let me allow us to then get a little bit of context for Judges 19 to 21 to bring us up to speed. We've been out of it for a couple weeks. Remember two weeks ago we saw the story in chapter 17 and 18 uh, of a Levite that picked up and moved He got adopted by a guy by the name of Micah, not the same prophet of Micah, a different guy. This guy claimed to love the Lord, but he also had carved images that he bowed down to. And so Micah unilaterally ordains this Levite as his personal priest, but this priest eventually took on a kind of bigger pastoral job, as it were. He went on to serve some idolatrous and destructive Danites, taking Micah's carved images with him. In other words, we were left with a Levite, a priest in the house of God, Worshipping and pleasing, not how God would happen to, but however he pleased. 
He was doing what is right in his own eyes. So that sets the backdrop of another Levite that we will meet today that will sink even deeper into self-directed worship. And as a result of this one man's decision that we will see today, this singular Levite's individualistic kind of feelings-based decision, civil war and injustices of the highest order will spread all through Israel. So here's how I'm going to work through this passage. I am not going to stop at chapter 20 as I had planned. You'll see why in a moment, but I'm going to work right on through to chapter 21. And at the back end of that, after working through those three chapters, I'll make some comments and applications for us today. Uh, So big idea for the sermon today. Big idea is, is rejecting God as king is to reject human flourishing. Rejecting God as king is to reject human flourishing. Take a look at uh, Judges chapter 19. Verse 1, Judges is the seventh book in the Bible in the Old Testament. Long before Christ has come, it's anticipating his return. And here's what it says. In those days when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. And his concubine was unfaithful to him, and she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah. And was there some four months. So when you see that first verse there in 19.1. It's the beginning of what some people would call an inclusio. It's sort of one side of something out that's going to be included on the other side. It's one set as it were. So we were, if we were to go to the last verse in the Bible. Or last verse in this book I should say. Judges 21.25. You'll note the familiarity. Same words. There was no king in Israel. Everyone do, did what was right in their own eyes. So there you have this kind of bookends. Chapter 19, verse 1 is one bookend. And the end of this, Judges 21, 25, is the other bookend. So 19 to 21, guys, is the exclamation point of this R-rated cautionary tale in the book of Judges. It's the exclamation point. He has taken these events and he has intentionally stuck them at the end of the book to make his point most clearly. If you didn't get it before this, he's sort of saying you should get it now because it's so awful. So all the events that we're reading about here are meant to make one point that God must be seen as king and we must reject ourselves as kings or queens. And if we don't, this is what we get. This is what happens. And we read there about that Levite. This is a different Levite from chapter 18. And he has this concubine. Remember, Levites would have been priests in the economy of Israel. He has a concubine. A concubine is a kind of second class wife, as it were. Wherein this Levite gets all the privileges of marriage, but not the responsibility. And so to be clear, there is no such provision of such a thing in the Bible. God does not ordain such relationships. Every time we see, this is important to note, every time we see concubines or polygamous marriages in the Bible, they are meant to warn us because that bad things always follow when you see those things happen in the Old Testament. Thus, Genesis and Jesus' ethic of marriage as one man And one woman. Well, this concubine leaves the Levite because it says there in verse 2 that she was unfaithful to him. Now, this is the only time in the Hebrew Old Testament where this word is used. It's kind of an obscure word, that word unfaithful. Technically, it means she played the harlot. Now, given the, uh, this could mean, this could mean that she slept with another man, uh, but given the context, I believe this passage more likely means that she was unfaithful to him and that she left him and went back home to her father, as you'll read, we'll read in a moment. Uh, older transcripts, uh, transcripts translate this word as though she were angry at him. 
And understandably so, because as this man was created in the image of God, he is a piece of work. I mean, he's a piece of trash in many ways, I'd like to say it. Take a look at verse 3. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and bring her back. He had with him his servant and a couple of donkeys, and she brought him into her father's house. And when the girl's father saw him, he came with joy to meet him. Now, after we read that, I want you to notice, did you look back up there in verse 2? How long had the woman, his wife, his concubine, how long had she been away? You'll notice there she had been gone for four months. Four months. You're going to see real quick, this Levite saw this woman as nothing more than a piece of property. If this woman was someone that he loved, it wouldn't have taken him four months to go and to get her. My guess is he probably realized that he was fine without her for a few months and let her go. And then he realized the utility that was her. And so he decided to go and get her. He realized he needed her for something. Well, from verses four down to nine of chapter 19, we see the father of this woman trying to delay the man from leaving. And he does it with radical hospitality. So either the man knows, either this father knows, this guy is worthless and he's trying to keep his daughter home, protected from this guy, or perhaps this narrative is here to throw some light on the lack of hospitality that you're going to see in a minute in the traveling party that's in Gibeah. Either way, they are leaving later in the day. In verse 9, their traveling party eventually leaves the home, and they, as a result of leaving, leaving later in the day, in verse 9, it results in a traveling quandary of sorts. In verses 10 to 15, we see that darkness is now coming. They need a place to stay as they're traveling. And ironically, the Levite chooses to pass by the city called Jabus, which is actually Jerusalem, because at the time it was populated by non-Israelites. You can see that in verse 12. Uh, And so he thinks that he's going to be better served by passing on to Gibeah, since in Gibeah, there's his brothers there. That's other Israelites, a tribe of Israel. And this is ironic, guys, because as it turns out, his own people, his own brothers are going to treat him as bad or worse than enemies. It may have been safer to go to Jabez. I think the author wants us to see that irony. And we find if you look there in verse 15, they sit out on the square and it says that no one takes them in. No one takes this in. Now, if a Jew is reading this, they would be shocked at such a thing that nobody would take them in. So this is meant to be seen as an ominous sign in the story. So in verses 16 to 21, we read about an Ephraimite, though, that's working in Gibeah, in the, uh, where this is the tribe of Benjamin. There's an Ephraimite, also an Israelite, working in that town of Gibeah. He comes in, he sees them sitting there, and he takes them in. That's verses 16 to 21. Uh, if we had more time, I'd want to show you the selfishness of the Levite in verse uh, 18 and 19. Go back and read that later, circle the Mees. But uh, we see in verse 20, the Ephraimite man seems to understand the depravity of the people in this town by telling him there in verse 20, the old man said, peace be to you, I will care for your wants, only do not spend the night in this square. He's understanding how bad these people, these Benjamites in the city are. And this leads to us into the story from verses 22 to 30 that's going to sound very similar to the shameful events of, uh, of Sodom. In Genesis 19, it's going to sound very familiar. Those of you that are familiar with that story in Genesis 19 of Sodom, it's going to sound very familiar. And that, by the way, is an intentional device of the author of Scripture. He's using this story here in order to help us see that this is basically Sodom 2.0. 
And he's doing that in order to show you that Israel has become no different than the wicked nations that they were meant to take down, even though they were the recipients of God's mercy time and time again. He wants you to see these guys are no different than they were in Sodom, even though God had been so good to them. And so what you are about to read is inserted to us to show that Israel had become canonized. They'd adopted just the practices of the land instead of upholding the mission that they were supposed to, namely to illustrate the worship of God. They were now no different than the pagans in the land. That's why this is here. Here we go. Verse 22. As they were making their hearts merry, remember they're inside this man's house, as they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, no, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Since this man has come into my house, do not do this vile thing. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you. Note that language. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. And her master rose up, which means he slept. And his master rose up in the morning. And when he opened the doors of the house and went out to go on his way, behold, there was his concubine lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. And he said to her, get up, let us be going. But there was no answer. Then he put her on the donkey and the man rose up and went away to his home. And when he entered his house, he took a knife and taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into twelve pieces and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And all who saw it said, such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it. Take counsel. Speak and speak. Now we have all kinds of questions from this passage, don't we? But I think many of them can be answered by listening and obeying that verse that I just read there in 1930. This series of events was so utterly depraved, despicable and degrading that, quote, such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. So when the author writes there until this day, that should be understood as a day he's writing in a day that it's far removed from the events that happen here. And so this would be like someone writing a book on the Holocaust today and saying uh, such a thing is never happening from way back then until this day. So it gives us some good perspective on when the author of Judges is writing. He's writing from a date far in advance of these events and he's looking back on them. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, he is giving us God's authoritative understanding. And what should we take away? What is that understanding? Well, the point of it is this is evil. This is evil in the sight of God. 
so evil that the prophet Hosea would write about it many years, even after the author of Judges probably wrote about it. In Hosea chapter 9, verse 9, where it says, referencing Israel, they have deeply corrupted themselves as in the days of Gibeah. Or Hosea 10.9, from the days of Gibeah, you have sinned, O Israel. So it's so awful, it's being marked even long later by a prophet. And so God would have us to look at these events and be disturbed by them, thus the direction by God that we should consider the event, take counsel from this event, and speak of this event, which is exactly what we're doing right now. The Bible, friends, is giving to us as God's authoritative understanding of historical events and given to us so that we would consider those events from God's perspective in order that we might rightly worship God and image Him on the earth that He made for His glory. And so since these events are something that is still remembered long after the events, we should understand them that like that National Memorial for Peace and Justice, like the Holocaust Museum, like the many aspects of the African American Museum, God is trying to disturb our passions of self-rule. He is showing us what results when we reject Him as King. This, friends, this story that we're reading about is the logical conclusion of a society that exalts the supremacy of self. Worthless men who treat treat women like objects or property. Doing what seems good to them. This leads to abuse which leads to death and dismay. Hardened consciences that sleep, sleep while known abuse is happening. When they just send their wives out to be violent. So the counsel that we are to take from God is that this is utterly unacceptable in the eyes of God. And therefore we are to speak against it. As I will in just a moment. But for now we have more counsel to take because the carnage continues and sadly it even multiplies. So let's see what happens as a result of these events. And again, we're going to come back, make some observations for us today. Take a look at chapter 20, verse 1. After these events, that's what's happening. Verse 1, then all the people of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba. Remember, he sent the parts of his concubine out. They're responding. Then all the people of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba, including the land of Gilead. And the congregation assembled as one man to the Lord at Mizpah. And the chiefs of all the people of all the tribes of Israel presented themselves in uh, presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God, 400,000 men on foot that drew the sword. Now, the people of Benjamin heard that the people of Israel had gone up to Mizpah and the people of Israel said, tell us, how did this evil happen? And the Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered, answered and said. Note the sinful sort of selfish bent where he kind of tells halves truths. He recounts, I came to Gibeah that belongs to Benjamin, I and my concubine to spend the night. And the leaders of Gibeah rose against me and surrounded the house against me by night. They meant to kill me and they violated my concubine and she is dead. And so I took hold of my concubine and cut her in pieces and sent her throughout all the country of the inheritance of Israel for they have committed abomination and outrage in Israel. Behold, you people of Israel, All of you, give your advice and counsel here. And so, brothers and sisters, we should be careful in the way in which we recall the events of our lives. This worthless Levite spoke much of the truth of what happened, but he did not tell the whole truth. 
He told his story in such a way as to place himself as the kind of innocent victim of the story. He kind of full again of half-truths. He doesn't mention that he made his concubine wife be fed to the dog so that he could be kept safe, keep drinking, and go and get a good night's sleep. He leaves that portion out. He leaves out his cowardice. He leaves out his selfishness and his culpability, though he rightly understands the depravity of these Benjamites. Which leaves us to ask the question, what's the motive of this guy, of this Levite? What's his motive? Well, according to verse 6, he seems to be motivated by the abomination and outrage of what happened. And of course, he should be. But based off of the history of this guy, we have little reason to believe this is all that he was interested in. Remember, this guy could go without his concubine wife for four months. And since he did not protect her and sent her out to the wolves in order to protect himself, we have every reason to believe that the reason he is so outraged is because he's lost a valuable piece of property to himself. But not knowing these facts, Israel uh, correctly responds in outrage. We find that for the first time in a long while, Israel becomes unified. You'll notice there in chapter 21 and verse 1, verse 8, and verse 11, you'll see that they gather as one man in the city of Mizpah uh, to uh, save, of course, the tribe of Benjamin. So Israel is gathered as one man in Mizpah. And by the way, interesting little marker. You can make a note and go back and read this later. Uh, uh, In 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 17, you can go read of another gathering uh, of Israel there that our author would have likely known about. Wherein you have also Israel gathering as one man, also in the city of Mizpah. Wherein, what do they do at that gathering? They are condemned for rejecting God as king. Can that be a coincidence? I don't think so. Well, Israel has become united. They're rightly going to serve justice to the worthless fellows that did this abominable act by repaying their evil. You can see that in chapter 20, verse 10. They send some folks over to Gibeah in order to track down these guys, in order to purge the evil from among them. That's verse 13. But tragically, the Benjamites are more interested in their own tribe than they are in God and in His justice of their own people, Israel. And so they don't give the worthless man up. Men up. They don't give him up. Which, of course, then incites civil war inside of Israel. They don't give them up. This incites civil war. Two very brief observations. First, if you have more allegiance to a particular tribe than you do God, His people, and His justice on the earth, then you should know that no matter what your profession is, you don't know God. So for instance, if you have a greater allegiance to this church or some other parachurch ministry or some collection of friends above the proper worship of God as it is revealed to us, word, then that group has become your God or those ideas have become your God, as is evidenced by these Benjamites here. Their tribe was more important to them than the proper worship of God and their own brothers. But secondly, I want you to notice that it was the foolish, foolish act of one man's decision, one man's decision to not love his wife that led to this civil war, one man's decision. As you will see, this is going to turn out to be a terrible fight. And so, friends, you should know, don't take your sinful choices and believe that they are in some ways isolated. Many people say that about pornography. It's isolated. No, it's not. Sin is never isolated. It is as we read it here. It always finds us out and it grows and it eventually builds and spreads to entire communities like gangrene. Sin is never isolated. 
Well, the battle lines have been drawn. In verse 15 of chapter 20, we read the tribe of Benjamin gathers up some 26,000 soldiers uh, and they get some 700 kind of Benjamite green berets. Right? And in Israel, their brothers, the text is going out of the way to mention that, they gather up 400,000 men to fight against their own brothers. That's verse 17. And you need to read what comes carefully. Take a look at verse 18. You can see it there. The people of Israel rose and went up to Bethel and inquired of God, who shall go up first for us to fight against the people of Benjamin? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up first. Now notice in that, Israel doesn't ask if they should go out and fight Benjamin. They just ask who should go up first. In other words, Israel, like a lot of us, they may, they've sort of made their minds up about this decision and they're just asking how God wants to bless it. But also, notice that they use the generic name for God there. And then you'll notice that the author intentionally inserts that it was the covenant name of God that responds. Judah will go up first, it says. Now, if you've been paying close attention through our series through Judges, that should sound strangely familiar to you. Namely, them asking who to go up and fight Judah comes first. That should sound familiar to you because that was the very first verse of this book. Exact same question, exact same answer. Except one major difference. The book of Judges began, you can go back and look at it right now, Judges 1.1. The book of Judges began with a question from Israel to their covenant God, the Lord. Note that land, that's going to be one of the differences. Who should go up and fight? And the Lord answered in Judges 1.1, answered Judah. Now remember, this is when they're going to defeat the enemies that are already in the land, not their own brothers and sisters. And so now it's ending, now the book is started that way, now the book is ending with the same question. But this time, they use the generic name for God, and they're asking not who should go fight against Israel's enemy in the land. Now they're asking to go and to fight against themselves. Thus the dissension of Israel from the beginning of the book to the end. What began in the beginning of the book and even in the events of Joshua onto Judges, what began with grace, mercy, power, and privilege as they were coming into the land has descended now into degradation, depravity, and civil war in Israel. Which, in, which reveals one of the most important points to take away from the, book, from the books of the Old Testament. It turns out, friends, don't miss this, it turns out Israel's greatest enemy wasn't the people in the land. It was themselves. They were their own worst enemy. They never seemed to understand that. All along, Israel never realized the pro- problem wasn't sort of outside the camp like they thought. The worst problem was inside the camp. They were their own worst enemy. Well, off they go. And without the promise of victory from the Lord, Israel fights and loses, believe it or not, to the rebellious Benjamites. You can see that there in verse 21. In the first battle against their own brothers of Benjamites, they lose. Israel loses. They have 400,000 men. They lose the first battle. That's verse 21. They lose 22,000 men. And in verse 23... They weep before the Lord after this bite and they inquire of the Lord if they should go and fight against their brothers. Now they're getting closer. Now they're starting to think a little bit more accurately, but not quite. The Lord responds there in verse 21. Yeah, go ahead and go get them. But notice in that verse, there's still no presence of the Lord promising them victory. As we have seen before and as we will see in just a moment again. And so they go out for the second battle against the Benjamites. And this time they lose again. Verse 25, they lose some 18,000 men. 
And so that brings Israel after as a result of this, that then brings Israel into a kind of come to Jesus moment. They realize something's not right. They keep losing. They should be winning. They're on the right side, as it were, and they just keep losing. And then we find in verses 26 to 28, we see for a very brief time something that should have been happening all along in Israel. Three things, or actually a few things happening. Israel humbles themselves after these two lost battles. They submit themselves to the Lord, as is evidenced by four things. Four things in 26 to 28. First, they fast uh, before the covenant Lord. That's verse 26. So in other words, Israel's actually refusing themselves something for the first time in a long time. Secondly, most significantly, they offer burnt offerings and peace offerings to the Lord. So this would have been done for the forgiveness of their own sins. They're recognizing, they seem to be recognizing they have sinned against God. And third, you finally have the presence of the Ark of the Covenant and a proper priest. Where have these been throughout the whole book of Judges? Phineas is there ministering before the Ark of the Lord. And then fourthly, verse 28, note this time they not only ask if they should go up against their brothers, but notice they ask if they should not. See, the posture of their heart seems to have changed. Israel has now rightly understood that before they get the speck out of Benjamin's eye and serve justice to them, they have to get the plank out of their own eye first. God has to be king, not themselves, as they have been operating. Well, after they do, after they get the plank out of their own eye, they now have the promise of the Lord to deliver victory take a look at verse 28 god does finally promise victory namely note that who's going to give it to him he's going to give them the victory it says and so we find in verses 29 to 48 of chapter 20 two stories that are counting the one event of the victory of israel over benjamin benjamin so the first one is 29 to 36 that's the more general observation of how the battle went down and how they won and then in verses 37 to 48, that's the more specific detailed account of how the victory was won. But the reality is, Israel does take the tribe of Benjamin. They do defeat them. But there's one big problem that results in this victory. Namely, the victory is so complete, they almost wipe them out. Which results in the problem that we read about in chapter 21. This is how the book ends. In chapter 21, after making a kind of Jephthah-like rash vow... In verse 1, they say there in verse 1, 21-1, to not marry any of the Benjamites, the Israelites, suddenly they then have compassion for the now almost wiped out tribe of Benjamin. And so what they decide they need to do is they need to kind of reseed the tribe of Benjamin so it doesn't die out. And what they do, friends, is as awful as anything we read about in chapter 19. Since they don't think their daughter should marry the Benjamites, they try and find someone from Israel that could marry them so they can repopulate the tribe. And in verse 8, they realize that there were some, Je- there were some Israelites from this town called Jabesh-Gilead that they can use them since they didn't make the vow, they didn't fight, they didn't show up. They'll go use them to re- help repopulate, uh, give them, to get them wives out of that town to, re- to be given to the Benjamite people, men, so that they can then have wives and repopulate the tribe. And this is as awful as anything you'll see. We see in verse 10, Israel responds by sending 12,000 soldiers of its own. Get this. Can you imagine this happening in the beginning of the book? They send 12,000 soldiers of their very own Israelites to go to their very own town of their very own brothers and sisters to wipe out men, women, and children so they can get some wives for these Benjamites. It's awful. 
And they do. They get 400 women. But this is not enough. They need more virgin daughters to give more wives to these men to repopulate Benjamin. And so they then try to figure out what they're going to do next. So then they come up with the idea of ambushing these daughters of Shiloh as they dance out from the festival unto the Lord. So get this. These women are worshiping the Lord. And they're coming out and they're going to ambush them. That's verses 20 to 21 in order to get more wives for these men of Benjamin. And in verse 23 of chapter 21, we read of the ambush of these poor women. That then gives them the women that they need to repopulate the tribe of Benjamin. And it is immediately, friends, following these events. It's important that you get this. It's immediately following these events that the book very intentionally and very abruptly ends. The author wants us to be appalled at these series of events. And then he wants to quickly insert the other end of his inclusio, the other bookend, the exclamation of this true narrative, which is his point. Judges 21-25, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The end. Not exactly, but the end of that book. So like the memorial, this story is meant to disturb us and then leave us with both the problem and the solution. The emphasis in this book and in this part of the passage especially is on the, is on the problem. This, in other words, this is what happens when mankind rejects God as king and is left to do whatever it wants. That's what he's trying to say. This is what happens. This crazy, ridiculous, awful stuff. This is what happens. It's trying to emphasize if you reject God as king, if you do what you want, this is what happens. And so therefore, it's trying to emphasize on the other side, the clear solution then is to take up God as king and to submit all of our lives to him. So as we saw back in chapter 19, verse 30, consider it, take counsel, speak. Which leads us to the answers of the first point of our application. Why is this book here? Judges. Why the book of Judges here? It's been a lot easier if we wasn't in here, right? Why is this book here? Why is these chapters here? Why is this terrible account preserved for us? The answer is clear, as we've said, so that we would not reject God as King, as Lord, and do whatever the world we want to do. That's why it's here. Friends, there's nothing new under the sun. Thousands of years later, on a different continent, we are living under the same experiment. More and more, man is trying to shove God out of the door, trying to ignore the reality of God's holy existence. And in pride, mankind is advocating that we do whatever we please except submit to God, the Lord in His ways. One cultural commentator says that we are living in our ABC moment. Anything but Christianity. In our country, we are passing laws, writing songs, selling books, clothes, TV shows, and movies that are meant to promote the supremacy of self and reject God as king. But beloved, none of that should surprise us, right? None of that should surprise us. The world has always operated this way. In fact, Scripture teaches us to expect the world to do that. This is why we have the call in the Bible to not love the world. This is the device behind all the movies and things that we're sort of taught from day to day. The shocking aspect of judges is the idolatry, the barbary, and the self-directed worship is happening to the people of God. That's what makes this so shocking. 
the people that were graciously and mercifully given God's law, God's presence, and God's place. So we, we wouldn't be nearly, nearly as shocked as if these stories were happening to just common criminals. These are supposed to be God's people setting up the beautiful picture of God as a shining light to the world. That's what makes this so jarring. But today, now, in our era, this old covenant that we're reading about, this old covenant here has been fulfilled in Christ. Christ has fulfilled the law for all those that believe. And now, the new covenant is in order. Meaning, those of us who are trusting in Christ alone for salvation, repenting of sin, now Christ has fulfilled the law for us, and there is a new covenant order. Now we are the people of God, the church. And sadly, yet again, we are seeing similar patterns of rejecting God as king and living as we please occurring inside the church. And I'm not just talking about liberal churches. I'm talking about Bible-believing evangelical churches. I see this in my own life. I'm saddened and sickened by the many ways that I conform to the world's pattern of self-directed worship and personal ease. As a Christian in America, I'm shocked at how easy I expect my life to be as a Christian. I don't know why I expect it. It's not the Bible, but it's how I live. I expect it to be easy. I can be scared to spread the gospel because of what I think may happen to me. I can want to keep my distance from people that might be a little too difficult for me because it might, they might take up too much of my time. So I keep my distance from them. I do that kind of thing. And by the way, this includes my own kids. Right? I mean my own kids because they're really inconvenient. Right? The new mothers and fathers can attest to this. They're really inconvenient. They're hard. And so what? You know, let's just not have children because they're too inconvenient. I, I can adopt this very own same mindset of thinking right, that my life is supposed to be easy. I need to have the kind of me time. I deserve my vacation. I deserve my time off. I deserve to spend my hard-earned money however I please. It's gotten in on me as well. Now to be clear, I haven't done the kinds of things that we read about here in Judges, but I could see how I would. Guys, you've got to remember the enemy wasn't outside the camp. It was inside the camp. Remember, Israel's slide into the slums of depravity was a slow, often indiscernible fade into oblivion. Remember at the beginning of this narrative how it was just one small compromise and another there that led to chaos. Remember how they mostly, remember this way back in the beginning, how they mostly defeated the Canaanites and then they reasoned that they would put the rest to work for them. In other words, they compromised and got their sin to work for them. That's how all of this began. Those small moments of compromise were huge moments of rejecting God as king, which led to the carnage of these chapters. They made them possible. And guys, we can do this every day. We can think that we know what's best. We come to a hard passage in the Bible or some kind of hard teaching, some sort of restraining teaching, and we assume, well, that can't be what God expects from me in Christ. And even if it is, God forgives me. I'm under grace. And we hit the snooze button and roll over. Telling God and neighbor that we'll get to them when it's a little more convenient. Meanwhile, we have things that we need or want to do. Maybe another way of getting behind this would be to consider a situation maybe 
where you as a Christian, a non-believer, asks you, what have you given up to follow Jesus? Would you be able to name in that instance four, maybe five things that you would prefer to do, but out of reverence for Christ and love for Him, you deny because you want to follow Him? Would you be able to name those things? Or do you find your brand of Christianity conveniently agreeing with your every women wish? Friends, do not lose sight of the deplorable Levite in this story. Look back at chapter 19, verse 18. Do not lose sight of the deplorable Levite in this story was on his way to the house of worship of the Lord. He was going to church. Jesus tells us that there will be some who say, Lord, Lord, but he never actually knew them. We are often blind to the many ways we can reject God as king and worship however we please. We are blind to the ways that we do conform to the world's pattern of me and my ways, not God and his ways. And so let us not forget that the evil one, friends, listen, let us not forget that the evil one did not deny the words of God in the Garden of Eden, but instead he twisted them to fit the desire of Adam and Eve to be like God. Let us not forget that he made Adam and Eve to believe that God was holding out on him, that there were something better. Let us not forget that the evil one in the garden, one, uh, he, the evil one appealed to the deliciousness of the fruit in order to get them to sour the world. Too many churches, too many Bible-believing, confessing Christians look too much like the world. And by doing so, they reject God as king and do as they please in their own eyes whilst taking his name. I want to be clear here, it is the Spirit of God that holds us in the Gospel. But friends, it is that very same Spirit that tells us in His Word that some have swerved from the faith by their devoting themselves to the things of the world. We must learn to love God and hate the devices of the world. If He is, as we've sung today, the Lord who loves us and has what's best for us in view. But let me now get to another question of application that this text, I think, demands us to address. What can we learn from the abuse of women in this passage? So let me, before I address this, I should, uh, I think it'd be helpful for you to know that I reached out to a number of women in our church and even uh, women outside of our church in order to get counsel on how best to speak to this issue. So these are not just my opinions. I'm trying to learn, trying to understand so that we would all understand. I, I also have a lot to learn myself. But the horrific abuse of the concubine in this passage, the killing of women and children for the purposes of obtaining women to marry and have children with, to the ambush of more women to have as wives and bear children. Friends, it is the unquestionable purposes of this book to display that God hates this behavior. He hates it. If the point of Judges is to be in a kind of R-rated cautionary tale whose point is to reveal what happens when mankind rejects God as king only to do whatever is right in their own eyes, then this story is meant to communicate that God hates the oppression of all women in all of its forms. Therefore, we as the church should hate it as well. Justice and the Gospel, friends, are not enemies. In fact, they are closely related. They need both. You need both. As Judges says in Judges 19.30, we should consider how the Levite treated his wife as property. We should take counsel from it and we should speak. 
And I understand that to mean that we should not only speak against this kind of behavior against women, but as we see in Judges 21-28, I understand that God would have us to facilitate justice to those that oppress women as well, or men for that matter. Now to be clear, that does not mean that the church wields the sword as it does here. This is an important Old Testament, New Testament understanding. It is not our responsibility to wield the sword as we find here. Since in the New Covenant, we find in Romans chapter 13, the sword has now been given to the government. Meaning, if we are aware of physical or sexual abuse, then we will abide by the law and we will report it as we have been told for the purposes of upholding the justice of God and protecting women. That's what we will do at this church. As I said a moment ago, the church can sometimes look just like the world. And it is a sad reality that according to some statistics, that domestic abuse is not any different in the church as it is in the world. A sad testimony. I've sat in domestic abuse training at least two times in the last three weeks. Sad to read these kind of statistics. The church, friends, is to be an oasis from the world. It should be a place where women should feel safe and protected by all those in the church. Male, female, single, or married. We, church, are to be a place of refuge. I am all too familiar with how there have been entire churches and individual men who in the name of male headship and or submission treat women in general or their wives little different than this foolish Levite. And this should not be so. It's unacceptable. So first off, women are never told in Scripture to submit to men. They are only called to submit to their husbands. Secondly, brothers, if you believe that leadership in the home means you can throw your power around and bully your wife or bully other women for that matter, you not only misunderstand the teaching of the Bible, you misunderstand the gospel and you misunderstand Jesus Christ himself. Christ was and is the great husband to the church. And the way that he used his headship was by loving and by serving, by laying his life down for others, in particular his wife, the church. He did not use his authority to take advantage of others or appeal to his rights as the Son of God. He used his authority to love others and to make others feel safe at the cost to himself even. So it should be with us. That's what it looks like to lead. You love and you serve others. You do not domineer or demand for yourself. That's what Christ teaches us headship is. And so if you are regularly using the language of submission to your wife, yet again, you are not understanding your role as a husband. As a leader. But even beyond marriage and life in the church, we should all know and believe that degradation, dehumanization, misogynistic or sexist thinking has no place in the hearts of God's people. No place. By the way, this includes those who participate in the degradation of women through the use of pornography. If you use pornography, friend, you are participating in the degradation of women. You should know that. In more ways than you probably realize. Remember, sin is not isolated. And so therefore, if it is an unintentional act or even an express view of a seminary president from our very own family of churches at this church, uh, we as Christians always work against the abuse of women in all of its forms. Men and women have roles to play, but since we are both created in the image of God, we are equal in the sight of God. And not only that, we should regularly recall that women play a very, very special role in the history of redemption. 
from the courage of Rahab to the bravery of Deborah and Jael in this very story to the testimony of Ruth, which, by the way, is the very next book that comes after this book, which we'll talk about soon. All the way to the tremendous faith of Mary and Elizabeth. And this is not even to mention Phoebe and Lydia and Priscilla in the New Testament. God values women. Uh, he says in First Peter 3 that we are to honor women. We should understand that they are part of the work of the kingdom, an important part of kingdom work. God loves women. He protects them. And he will not tolerate abuse or sexism of any kind, nor should we. And so if you're here this morning and you're a woman, or a man for that matter, that has been abused, I want you to know that this is a safe place. It's our desire to care for you, to raise you up, and point you to God's healing and restorative amazing grace. Mistreated women felt at home with Jesus. And while we are far from perfect in this church, I am far from perfect as I have already rehearsed, it is our desire that you feel at home as we bring you to Jesus. And if you are here and you are abusing women, or even if you're not abusing them, but you're saying things and doing things that demean them, while I stand by what I said, I want you to know that God's grace is not too far from you either. There is grace and there is healing and there is forgiveness in the arms of Jesus. And I'd invite you to come speak to me about it. And so whether you have been mistreated or are the ones doing the mistreatment, I invite you to come to talk to me, talk to one of our elders, so that we can show you the power of the gospel. We promise to be a friend to you and to be a brother to you, to care for you. But don't let abuse or mistreatment stay in the dark. Drag it into the light by telling someone and walking that hard but good road to healing and restoration. And no, friend, you do not walk it alone. You do not walk it alone. Not only will we pledge to walk with you, more importantly, Christ promises to walk with you. Through faith. And you ask, well, how is that exactly possible, Christ walking with me? Well, friend, it's, it's possible because Christ has not stood apart from the fears and the miseries of our world. He willfully entered into him. Though he did not have to, Jesus chose to enter our pain and our sufferings, mistreated himself, Jesus was a friend to the poor and the wealthy, to the religious and the irreligious, to the broken and abused, as well as the privileged and those who had done the abuse. Jesus was a friend to Jew and to Gentile, to men and women. He showed no partiality. He loved Jesus. Did he love them all? Therefore, it should come as no surprise that the ones whose society had cast off as weak and worthless, they found a home with Jesus as he came near to them. Jesus came to show us what life and community looks like that has God as king and us submitted to him. Jesus was the one that said. Notice he doesn't even do what is right in his own eyes. Jesus says in John 14, I do as the father commanded me. So that the world may know that I love the father. As it says in Ephesians, in Christ, heaven and earth come together. But friends, Jesus was not only a good example, a kind of inspiration for humanity. No, Jesus claimed to be the Lord himself. Heaven and earth cannot be reconciled, friends, by mere sentimentality. The divide must be mended. And the divide was and is sin against God. It's what we're reading about through Judges. Until that, until sin is dealt with, no harmony or human flourishing can exist. We're watching this experiment in our own society fail because we're not dealing with sin, which is what Jesus came to ultimately deal with. 
Rejecting God as king and doing whatever we please is high treason to our holy God. It is the reason why the abuse of women is real. It is the reason why any abuse or any amount of suffering is real. So when man sinned against God, the justice of God then served a punishment upon the earth. And so until sin is atoned for, heaven cannot return to the earth. Man cannot be with God. And so Christ came to extract the cancer that was behind all of our griefs. To deal a death blow to the root of all of our pain and all of our sufferings. And that is what happened on the cross of Christ. The true and forever King. The King that Israel should have been looking for. The one that they were told to look for. Judges is pointing straight to Jesus. And that's not some hermeneutical gymnastic thing. That's the point of Judges. No king was pointing to the King of Kings. Who shows His love, His submission, His beauty. That's right, His power on the cross. Wherein He lives a sinless life and lays His life down so that others might know His joy, have their sin atoned for, that they might be with God again, that they might know heaven. Christ atoned for sin on the cross. And He rose on the third day so that those that repent and believe, they can overcome sin. They can overcome the difficulties of our world. The pain. And they can then live in this thing that Jesus talked about so much. The kingdom of God. Which is always miracles happening with just beauty, health, flourishing. That can't happen unless Christ atones for sin. My sin. Your sin. And after Christ rose from the dead, He ascends to heaven. And an angel then spoke to the apostles who saw that event and then they wrote it down for us. And in that promise from the angel, we read a promise to us. That as Jesus has come and gone, so will He return. And with His return, friend, comes justice to all evildoers. And all the more, with Him comes the world that we all wait for but never can seem to find. The world that judges could never bring. With Him comes, Jesus, heaven. But make no mistake about it, friends. While we wait for Him now, you should know He still rules and reigns from His throne in heaven right now. In other words, there is a king in Israel. There is a king in Iran. There is a king in Afghanistan. There is a king in Bolivia. There is a king over Indonesia where there was a bombing where Christians were killed. There is a king in America and His name is Jesus. He's king now. And He is a good King. As is evidenced by Him coming, identifying with our fields, our failures, and paying for our sin, rising and promising to return so as to bring heaven on earth. There is a King. And He, no matter what people say of Him, He is real, He is reigning, and He is returning. And He will come, and He will make all right. And so I plead with all of us as a church. I plead with you, if you've never given your life to Christ, repent of your sin. And submit your life to Him. Don't do what is right in your own eyes. Do what is right in His. He is the way to life, liberty, and the true pursuit of happiness. He's the one that we were meant to live for. He is the King. When we get to heaven, by the way, what are we going to do? We're going to look at a King. We're going to be hanging out with King Jesus all the time. In His kingdom, which is good. And we can know that now. Even in the midst of all the chaos and the difficulty. You heard Monica testify to that earlier. Do not do what is right in your own eyes. Submit all of your life to all of Him and do what is right in His eyes. And soon enough, you will see Him and enjoy Him and His kingdom of peace and harmony forever and ever. 